tonight on Special Edition. We have Russian cannibals, fake news, a Grenfell Tower disaster update, the Matthew Levison inquest winds up, another sentencing controversy and the disappearance of a 43-year-old mum from her holiday house. Hi, I'm your host Cambo. Grab a beer and pull up a deck chair. This is True Crime Island Special Edition. Hi Islanders, let's get stuck into it. First off, I have a story mentioned by Katie and Stephen Martin out of Russia about a Russian couple that are believed to have drugged their victims, then skinned them alive. Afterwards, they would eat parts of their victims and then either freeze or pack the remains into jars. Sometimes they would slip some of the human meat into the food of the soldiers stationed at the military academy where they worked. This all happened at Krasnoda, Russia, located on the Kuban River, approximately 148 kilometres northeast of the Black Sea port of Norozhsk. And that's about 1,300 kilometres south of Moscow, or 800 miles. City police have arrested the couple, Natalia Bakshiva, 42, and her husband, Dmitry Bakshiv, 35. Now, as you know, people get caught in lots of ways, either through stupidity or just not planning in enough detail. Some get caught in the act. Well, this couple... It looks like they may have been killing and eating people for over two decades. And they may have dined on up to 30 victims. So they must have been doing something right. So how'd they get caught? Well, on September 11, road workers found a phone by the side of the road. They found it was still working and, of course... The first thing you go for is the photo album. As they swiped through the photos, they came across photos of a man with different parts of a dismembered human body in his mouth. How about that? Around the same time, police found the dismembered corpse of a 35-year-old woman near the state-run aviation academy where Natalia and Dimitri lived. Police tracked the owners of the phone via special technical measures. Now, we don't know what those special technical measures are, but probably just pinging towers. So, when they searched the couple's flat, which was hostel accommodation at the Krasnodar military base, they found photos with timestamps going back to 1999. These photos depicted the couple dismembering and eating their victims. At some point over the last two decades, the cannibal couple had worked in the military base kitchen. Although it's not known at this stage how they chose their victims, it is known that they would drug them then skin them alive. 
police found the fridge full of frozen meat, human meat, and parts of bodies all over the apartment in jars and cans cans with saline solution. How about that? One can contained what police described as a canned hand. I said hand, not ham. Not spam, but canned hand. The video walkthrough showed a messy, dishevelled room with rubbish, debris and clothes scattered all over the floor and draped over the furniture. If you go to rt.com, you can see the walkthrough video. The place is a fucking mess. It's like those uh, hoarders' houses on TV. There are also wigs on top of a small freezer and dozens of pictures on a bed. So I reckon the wigs could have been part of them uh, getting into disguise, maybe to lure their victims. Okay, let's go on. A friend of theirs that said that she didn't notice anything weird about them. They were polite. He was a construction worker and his wife had been a nurse, but she'd lost a job and drank a lot. She also said, the news came as a shock to me. I never had a clue as to what was going on. How many times do we hear that? It's the, well, I don't think they were so much normal next next doors, but it's the normal quiet ones that are the ones you got to watch for. Okay, let's go on. Another shopkeeper said, I did not notice anything strange about him. He was neighbourly, but he had a smell about him like he didn't shower or had a cat or dog piss on his clothes. I think that's what the translation said. But you can imagine that. Mm, Lots of people smell bad. He also said he worked at a construction site. She was drunk more frequently. She's a really untidy woman. She used to be neat, employed as a medical worker, but lately she was jobless and she kept on drinking. So, it looks like the 35-year-old woman they found dismembered nearby had been at the couple's house and had ended up fighting with them. They killed her and then Dimitri took selfies with her dismembered body. Problem is, he lost his phone. You know that feeling when you think you've lost your phone? That clenching of the sphincter, thinking it's gone, and how shit it is if you've really lost it? Soon you think, are all your contacts backed up online and all those, that horrible feeling of losing your photos? Well, imagine losing your phone with your dismembered victim's selfies on it. Now, one of the photos dated December 28th, 1999. Now, obviously, this wasn't on the phone. This was in one of the photos they found inside the house. Now, it shows a dismembered human head on a plate with fruit. I mean, Catherine Knight would be proud of this couple. So, 
We'll hear some more about this. This is just a breaking story from last week, but I'm sure we'll hear more. Okay, this is another really, really strange one brought to us by one of our listeners. The FBI seizes over 3,000 penises during a raid at a morgue worker's home. The FBI suspected 54-year-old Dave Murray, who worked at the Harris County morgue, of being part of an organ trafficking network. I mean, what? Penises? I don't know. Anyway, they were investigating reports of missing organs and body parts, and when they raided his home, they were shocked at what they found. They found shelves everywhere, filled with thousands of glass jars. Each one of them had a penis floating in formalin. As soon as Dave was arrested, he confessed in great detail how he'd been cutting off dead men's dongers and collecting them for more than 10 years. And that's about one a day, every day. Well, people, you know that's fake news. Funny story, but yes, it is fake. I hear you screaming at your Bluetooth speaker saying, Cambo, Cambo, it's fake. Don't say it. Don't say it. Yes, but it does lead to my next story. Paul Horner, who was the troll who published fake news during the US presidential election, has died of a suspected drug overdose. 38-year-old Horner was found dead in his bed in Levine, Arizona, on the 18th of September. He was known to abuse prescription drugs, and there's no evidence of foul play. Now, you think, so what? But in reality, some of his fake news articles were picked up by Trump supporters, and often in the heat of the moment, facts don't get checked, and shit goes viral. Even Trump's campaign manager tweeted about one of his fake stories in relation to a Trump protester getting paid $3,500. He even claimed it was his fake news that got Trump elected. I mean, who knows? And I'm not trying to get political here or be on one side or any other side. I'm just reporting the news. Okay. In 2013, Fox News reported another one of his stories about Barry Obama and that he would fund a Muslim culture museum just to stir up shit. So even the big news outlets will get caught up by this. Now, I wonder if his death was accidental or if he was helped out of town. I'm sure there will be a lot of conspiracy theories bouncing around over the next few months. It is true that he did piss off the Clintons. And you know what that means. Boom, fuckalunga. Okay, next item on the agenda is an update on the Grenfell Tower disaster. Now, these, uh, this comes from extracts from The Guardian. The Kensington and Chelsea Tenant Management Organisation 
has been stripped of its role and new management will be found for the Grenfell Tower and the housing stock of the Kensington and Chelsea Council. The Deputy Council Leader, Kim Taylor-Smith, told the meeting that TMO no longer has the trust of the residents. He added that the council was working with the TMO to bring its contract to a close, citing lack of confidence in its fire safety record and unanimous vote of no confidence from 25 residents' associations. Too bad they just didn't listen to the residents before. But Taylor Smith, and don't you love these hyphenated names, said the council was drawing the contract to a close in an organised fashion, adding, We are listening to residents and consulting on how they want their homes and neighbourhoods to be managed in the future, and I'm sure they're really going to let them do that. This comes on top of reports that only 20 families from the Grenfell Tower have been moved into permanent new accommodation. About 180 households still need to be resettled. Now of those, 52 have accepted offers and are ready to move. So it's a slow pace, but the council is buying up new properties and have offered another 150 households from the surrounding low-rise blocks the option to move as well. The inquiry's public hearings started on the 14th of September 2017. An interim report is due in Easter 2018. They include consideration of the actions of Kensington and Chelsea Borough Council and KCTMO both before and after the fire occurred, as well as the adequacy of relevant building regulations and whether they were complied with. So we will hear more about this in the coming months, and I hope the inquiry is in-depth and independent, or this will just drag on forever. Okay, here's a local story that's got a lot of media attention in the past week. It's the disappearance of 43-year-old Elisa Curry from her holiday home along Victoria's Great Ocean Road at Aries Inlet. Elisa is a law and economics graduate, marathon runner and full-time mum. She was last seen going to bed at 10pm on Saturday, September 30. Sometime between then and 9am on Sunday, she vanished. On September 30, Elisa watched the AFL Grand Final at the house with a friend. Her husband David and three children, aged between 7 and 12, were at the game and were staying in Melbourne that night. Aries Inlet is about a 90-minute drive southwest from Melbourne. It's a pretty rugged bushland area with rocky tracks, cliffs and rough seas close by. David Curry, her husband, raised the alarm when he and his children returned from Melbourne on Sunday morning to find an empty house. Inspector Peter Seal, 
who's been investigating the disappearance, said, This case is so unusual. It's a lady with three children who has vanished and there's just been no indication of what may or may not have happened to her. And that captures the imagination of the public. It's been unusual in the sense that we've had nothing to start from apart from the house. We've got no direction of travel. We've got no time she may have left. We've got no description of clothing she may or may not be wearing. We've had no phone contact. Generally, in these types of cases, you get something you can utilise. Okay, so what is known is that Elisa watched the grand final on TV with a friend at her own house. Now, that's Saturday afternoon. The friend left, and later that night, her neighbours, a married couple, came over. They both left, but at 10pm, the wife returned to speak to Elisa about a personal matter. She then saw Elisa get into bed before she headed back home. At 10.30pm, Elisa turned off her phone and it has not been turned on since and it is missing. What is interesting is that Elisa shut down her Facebook page before she disappeared. Now, I don't know exactly what time this happened, but apparently it was late Friday night. And this is indeed strange. The cops don't want to speculate what has happened to Elisa, and they only want to rely on evidence. The problem is, there's hardly any evidence at all. At the residence... There was no sign of foul play, no sign of a struggle, no clues that she may have wanted to hurt herself or to run away from her life. She is a marathon runner, but the item such as her Fitbit was not taken with her. The fact that her dog was found wandering the streets, and this is according to her husband, was more likely because the dog escaped rather than being on a run with Elisa. There's been an air, sea and land search all week, but nothing's come up. Also, it looks like they've contacted family, friends and neighbours, but have yet to find any reason why she would run away from her life. Her husband, David has gone on TV pleading for any information. He said, I, my kids, we just want her to come home. Elisa, if you're out there, can you please contact us? If anyone has seen anything, just please contact us. So, police say that if she was out in the bush... There was little chance of her surviving in that environment for any period of time. In regards to whether it's becoming something other than a missing persons case, the police said, We haven't got a crime, 
and that everyone, everything was still on the table. So they're still not sure if she's just done the bolt or if she's missing or been abducted. They Honestly, they have no idea. So let's just go over a timeline of events. Friday night, Elisa shuts down her Facebook page. Saturday, 2.30pm, Elisa's watching the AFL Grand Final with a friend who leaves sometime after the game's over. Saturday, after 5.30pm, Elisa messages her husband, who was at the AFL Grand Final with their children, about the result of the game. Two neighbours, a husband and wife, visit Elisa on Saturday night. The couple leaves, but the wife returns later. It's Saturday 10pm. The female neighbour returns to Elisa's place and discusses a personal matter with her. The neighbour leaves after seeing Elisa get into bed. Now, this is a little strange. The next door sees her go to bed. I mean, that that's just a bit weird, but I don't know. Maybe she just went to bed and they let themselves out. Who knows? Saturday, 10.30pm. Elisa's phone is switched off. It's the last time her phone pings a nearby mobile tower. Sunday, 9am. David Curry and the couple's kids return to the holiday house to find Elisa missing. Tuesday, 2pm. David Curry pleads for information on his missing wife. He says, Elisa, if you're out there, can you please contact us? So, this Facebook thing, the chat with the next door about a personal thing and the phone turning off. These are what, to me, seem critical in this case. Elisa, who is a non-practicing solicitor and stay-at-home mum, maybe she had some issues and she just needed to get away. The latest information is that police have set up an information caravan outside the Aries Inlet General Store and at this time they've spoken to more than 150 people. They hope to speak to drivers who were in the Aries Inlet between 10pm Saturday, September 30 and 10pm Sunday, October 1. Some of these drivers may have had dash cam footage of the surrounding area. They're also looking to speak to anyone exercising in the lawn and Urquhart's Bluff area between sunrise and 11am on that Sunday. Lisa Curry is described as Caucasian, about 167, 167 centimetres tall, with an athletic build, brown eyes and brown shoulder-length hair. It is not known what she was wearing when she disappeared. Anyone who sees Miss Curry or has information is urged to phone Crime Stoppers on 1-800-333-000. They can also contact the Missing Persons Advocacy Network, and that's mpan.com.au, 
And if anyone's having any issues or suicidal thoughts or just feel bad, you can call Lifeline. They're on 131114 or their website is lifeline.org.au. There's a suicide callback service. That's on 1300 659 467. And their website is suicidecallbackservice.org.au. And there's Beyond Blue, which is 1300 224636. And their website is beyondblue.org.au. So, Islanders, I mean, what do you reckon about that? I mean, I'll follow it up in the next few weeks if there's any information that comes to hand. Okay, so it would be remiss of me not to mention the tragic events in Vegas this week. A gunman, who I will not name, as he needs to be forgotten in history, who was a reclusive 64-year-old high-stakes gambler fucktard, rented a room at the Mandalay Hotel on the 32nd floor and started shooting into the crowd. This crowd was attending the Country Music Festival last Sunday night. He killed 58 people and injured hundreds more using high-powered automatic weapons. He requested an upper-floor room overlooking the festival, stockpiled 23 guns, a dozen, a dozen of them modified to fire continuously like an automatic weapon and set up cameras inside and outside his room to watch for approaching officers. Although there is no clear motive, what investigators do know is that he also booked rooms overlooking the Lollapalooza Festival in Chicago in August and the Life is Beautiful show near the Vegas Strip in late September. By the time police were able to get to the room he was shooting from, the gunman had committed suicide with a gunshot to the head. I'm sure our hearts go out to all those affected by the event, friends, family, first responders, and anyone else that has been disturbed by what has happened. Now, I know there's plenty of debate going on at the moment, and I won't get into that tonight. Now, how do we stop shitty, fucked up people doing this? I mean, you don't need a gun. It could be a bomb. It could be a truck. It doesn't matter. How do we stop people being fucktards and doing this sort of shit? Honestly, I don't know, and I really don't think there will ever be a solution you can't stay at home if you stay at home there's no point these people win anyway that's all i'll say until there's more detail on how it came to happen if they ever find out next story the matthew levison inquiry It wrapped up this week in Sydney's Glebe Coroner's Court. Now, if you're a new listener and you don't know much about the case, I urge you to go to episode four and have a listen 
And then I have a few special edition update episodes along the way that you can have a listen to. Mark Levison, Matthew's father, told Deputy Coroner Elaine Truscott that Michael Atkins demonstrated cold, calculating, self-interest-focused behaviour. Not the actions of a person whose loved one is missing. This is not consistent with an accidental death. We all know that. Counsel assisting the coroner, Tim Game, urged Ms. Truscott to deliver an open finding on the manner and course of Matthew Levison's death. He said, you should make an open finding. He also said, Atkins repeatedly lied to authority. You could comfortably conclude that Atkins has given a series of false accounts. However, our position is there is ultimately no reliable objective evidence as to the matter and cause of Matt's death, and in particular, there's no evidence that Matt's death was the result of an act by Atkins. Mark and Faye Levison They said they are emotionally prepared for an open finding about their son's death. Mark Levison said, The counsel for the coroner thinks there's no way of determining that Atkins was involved in Matt's death and has asked for an open finding. We vehemently disagree with that. This person has great involvement in Matt's death as well as his disposal of the body. Faye Levison said they will always believe Atkins had a hand in Matthew's death. She said, I know we'll probably get an open finding, but as Mark said, we've been knocked down so many times, I'm not expecting things to go our way. The main thing was, we did find Matt. We got him back. We still fight for him. And if we get an open finding, we'll have to live with that. We'll know in our hearts who was responsible for it. He buried him. You don't do that to somebody you love. You just don't dump them in the bush in an unmarked grave. It is a tragic story and the investigation has gone as far as it can. There will never be any way to truly determine what happened to Maddie. At least for Mark and Faye, they did get to bring Maddie home. The coroner will release the final report at a later date, and of course, I will keep you up to date. Now, finally, in the What the Fuck Sentencing Bureau, Brendan Toohey found guilty of the manslaughter of his fiancé's baby girl. Tui was charged with murder in April 2014 after the 11-month-old baby he was looking after while his fiancé was in hospital died from serious head injuries. 38-year-old Tui maintained that he placed the 11-month-old on an outside trampoline while he took the washing off the line only a couple of metres away. I mean, I wouldn't do that, would you? I don't know. Let's let's keep going. He, he says 
She fell off and hit her head on the concrete septic tank, which was under the trampoline. Now, I don't know how worldwide septic tanks are, but they're basically cylindrical concrete things that take all your turds and all your water into a tank that's built into the ground. So you've got this cylindrical circular concrete bit above ground. The trampoline was apparently on top and the baby was placed there while he was taking the washing off the line. And then the baby, as they do, apparently rolled off and hit its head on the edge of the concrete septic tank. Okay, let's go on and see how true this can be. His fiancée, who can't be named, was in hospital at the time. She was admitted the day before for a basic procedure and Tui was left to take care of the baby. So after the baby fell, he then took the baby to hospital but she died soon after. Tui has given several inconsistent reports to police on how it happened. All these reports tend to contradict each other to a certain degree. An autopsy found that rather than one fall from the trampoline, the damage to the child's skull was inflicted by several blunt force traumas, likely from a fist, that caused the injuries that brought about the death of the baby. So, the jury did not find uh, Tui guilty of murder, but they did find him guilty of manslaughter. Okay, you think you can get up to 25 years for that? You can, but Justice Fagan found that he was not satisfied the child fell from the trampoline, rather she had been hit by Tui. That's fair enough. He found that the accounts Tui gave to police lacked credibility and was contradictory. So basically, he's saying he's lying. Justice Fagan also inferred from his evidence, from this evidence, that he struck the child in the way that proved fatal, whilst under stress and frustration, trying to cope with her when she was needy and demanding, and when he was not able to maintain patience and self-control. He also says he has not, in terms, expressed remorse. This is not an aggravating factor. I note the absence of remorse for two reasons. Okay, first, if remorse were demonstrated, it would be a mitigating factor. So, my finding that this consideration is not present should be stated explicitly. Secondly, The absence of expressed remorse is relevant to my assessment of the offender's prospects of rehabilitation and the likelihood of him reoffending. The offender purports to accept responsibility for the child's death only in terms of negligence. He maintains his denial of criminal guilt and denies having inflicted blows to the child's head. 
He made this clear to the psychologist who assessed him and the psychologist stated, since Mr. Tui denied the charge against him, it is difficult to provide an opinion regarding reoffending. In general, he showed reasonable insight and he appeared to be at least of average intelligence. These characteristics can be beneficial if he decides to address his offending behaviour. Oh my God! What the fuck are these people talking about? This goes on, right? So, matters to which I've referred indicate indicate a reduced risk that the offender would re-offend. What do you mean? Accepting as I do that he was genuinely extremely distressed by the outcome of his loss of control and violence to the child, I consider it reasonable to expect that in future he would be aware of his limitations in the management of young children, that he would avoid situations of exposure to such stress and that he would not likely offend again in this manner. What the fuck are you talking about? In in a case as such as this, the offender's lack of acceptance of and remorse for the assaults upon the child, which jury con- clearly found, does not necessarily heighten the risk that he would re-offend. Even if placed under similar stresses in future, as may well occur, and it will occur, because you assholes are going to let him out, I would consider it unlikely he would react with violence towards a child. What the fuck are you talking about? He's got the kid on the trampoline. He's just taken the washing in. That's all he's doing. So what if the kid's crying? He doesn't have to beat it to death. Even if placed under similar stresses. What do you mean? The court would be more confident of this if the offender acknowledged and directly addressed what the jury has found. But he's not going to. He is just not going to accept that he did bash this child. He's still holding on to the fact that the child fell off the trampoline. The autopsy shows someone bashed the kid to death. However, on the balance of probabilities... I consider I should sentence him on the basis that he does not pose a significant risk of repetition of an offence of violence towards a child. What the fuck are you talking about? This is just ridiculous. I'm. This is real. You can just look it up on the internet. You can go to the case notes, the bloody court records. This is bullshit. So I'm no lawyer and I'm no judge. But from what I can see here is that Tui denies hitting the child, which goes against the forensic evidence. Rather, he says he was negligent and not criminally criminally guilty. They, these assholes, they say because he has done this and it distressed him that he probably won't do it again. He probably won't do it again. You know, he's done it once. You know, he, he looked pretty freaked out. He's not going to do it again. Okay, you know what? He got for the manslaughter of this 11-month-old child on the 2nd April 2014. Brendan Tui was sentenced to imprisonment for a non-parole period. And get this, listen, four years and six months. Commencing on the 19th of April 2014, 
and expiring on the 8th of October 2018. Of course, he's got the balance of the term of three years commencing on the 9th of October 2018 and that expires on the 8th of October 2021. So he can be out next year because he's been in custody without, on bail for three years. They've, he's already used up that time. How the fucking, the fucking, the fuck, fuck does this fucking happen? Okay, they can't prove murder, but they are saying he probably bashed the kid to death. Even if it was out of character, out of character, surely. Surely you should get more fucking time than fuckity fuck that. <sighs> okay, Islanders, I've ended the night on a rage. But, uh, look, I just can't believe that one. But I'm sure there'll be more to come. So, that's the end of another special edition. Let's do some Patreon shout-outs. It's been another month, and a big shout-out to all the new Patreon supporters. I'd like to say thank you to the new supporters, Paula Collins, Nikki P, and Zoe Young. Thanks, everyone, for your support. I see Heather has her mug of rage now. Thanks, Heather. Also, I'll be posting out to all the people that qualify uh, the stickers this week. And there is another mug of rage to go out to an Islander who goes by the name of Maggie James as well. I'll be looking to replace the dead PC soon. So again, thank you very much for all your support. To join up, go to patreon.com forward slash true crime island and for as little as a dollar per month for weekly episodes you too can support the island financially if a one-off donation is what you'd rather then my paypal is my email address which is cambo at truecrimeisland.com you can also support the island by sharing the love Tell someone about the wide world of podcasts and give them a hand if they need it. You can also rate and review on iTunes or whatever platform you listen to podcasts on. If you're on Facebook, join the closed group, which is True Crime Island. Uh, You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram as well. My Twitter and Instagram handle is at True Crime Island. And you can also, of course, search for True Crime Island on Facebook. Email me or message me if you have any questions or episode suggestions. I still have beer coolers or koozies in can or bottle sizes. Email me at cambo at truecrimeisland.com and I'll give you all the details. Now, I post these from headquarters so they aren't on the merchandise link. And But on the merchandise link, you can order mugs, t-shirts and hoodies. There was a request for a hashtag boomfuckalunga shirt. So maybe I put one up and see how it goes. So just look out for that. Finally, I'd just like to say I do try to answer all Facebook, Twitter and Instagram posts. I may at times be busy and can't reply straight away, but I do try to get to all of them. Don't forget, the island is in a totally different time zone from the US, UK, Europe and Norway. If I have missed any, please accept my apologies. 
thanks to Dahlia, who made a lovely needlepoint featuring Boomfuckalunga. You can have a look at that. That's on the Facebook page. Thanks so much to Dahlia, who's going to post it to the island. And that is wonderful. Today's episode was a day late because of the Bathurst 1000 race on Sunday. And sadly, the Fords didn't win. But as you know with football teams, there's always next year. Also, I'll be doing another voiceover for a podcast you probably all sub to. to, And I'll give you more details next week. Okay, Islanders, that about wraps it up. I'm Cambo, and you've been listening to True Crime Island Special Edition. Good night, and don't forget to delete your browser history.